Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. So welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. Today we have a very special episode. We're going to be talking about this competition that uh, took place at UMass uh, called the Three Minute Thesis. We have some people who made it up the ranks of the Three Minute Thesis joining us. Um, so yeah, let me just go ahead and introduce our guest today. We have Louis. Oh, I should have asked you how to pronounce your name it's before I started doing this. <laughs> Honestly, it's a really tough name to pronounce. I can't blame you for anything. I'm, I'm going to let you say yeah, it. Yeah, it's Coloratolo. Coloratolo. Yeah, that's pretty good. And um, he's in the food science department here at uh, UMass Amherst, um, and he's also a National Science Foundation fellow in soft materials and life sciences. He's originally from Rochester, New York. Um, He has an associate's degree of culinary arts from Alfred State University, very cool, a bachelor of science in food science from University of Delaware, and soon to be a master's of food science at uh, UMass Amherst. Um, And then he'll be moving on to the University of Guelph? Guelph. Guelph. Yeah. Ooh, where is that? That's uh, It's sort of near Toronto. It's like an hour west of Toronto. Cool. Um, for a PhD in food science. Um, and he studies biodegradable food packaging um, and how it is the answer to reduce waste. Also joining us is Liang Guo, um, a PhD candidate in organismic and evolutionary biology, who is also the current president of Life Science Cafe and founding member of the Life Science blog, That's Life Science. I didn't know that. I've uh, checked out the blog, so it's cool. Thanks. (laughs) Um, She's originally from San Diego, California, and has a Bachelor's of Arts in Organismal Biology from Scripps College. She studies how the physiology of young fish are affected by temperature due to climate change shifts. Cool. Um, Also joining us today is Heidi Bauer-Clapp, who is Assistant Director of the Graduate School Office of Professional Development and the organizer of the three-minute thesis competition. Um, She is originally from the frozen tundra of northern Minnesota. (laughs) Um, She has a PhD in anthropology from UMass. And um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us all, you guys. Thanks for having us. Um, Also joining today as my co-host is Gabe Sklan. He's a local comic and a student at Hampshire College. Hi. I love being on this show. The last time I was on this show, I felt like I learned so much, and I'm just excited to be here. Yeah, nice. Cool. So I think maybe to kick things off, maybe Heidi, do you want to tell us about the three-minute thesis? Sure. So the three-minute thesis was first organized by the University of Queensland in Australia in 2008. And since then, hundreds of institutions across the world have had their own competitions. We joined in 2017. So this past competition was our third year. And it's a speaking competition where, as the name implies, the speakers each have up to three minutes to share what they do in their graduate research, and they only get one slide. The idea is to speak in an accessible and engaging manner to a general audience. Cool. I've, I've kind of heard this phrase uh, framed as like an elevator pitch, yeah. right? So like yeah. a quick way of telling somebody what you do and why Yeah, matters. so the idea is that someone who knows nothing about your field, what would they want or need to know, and how can you tell them that in a way that's going to resonate? Yeah, cool. I, I got to say, you pitched the contest well. Thank you. <laughs> I've had Very a lot exciting. of practice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, So what gave you the original inspiration to bring this program to UMass? You know, honestly, it just looked like a lot of fun. You know, graduate students spend so much time on their research, as I learned all too well when I was doing my own research, and you get so isolated. You focus on this really narrow, specific thing for so long, 
and you kind of forget what's interesting and exciting about it. You might think it's still interesting, but you forget what others might find interesting about it. And you kind of lose the ability to talk about it in a way that's not really technical and that only other experts would understand. So the three-minute thesis just seemed like a fun way to get people out of the lab, to get people out of the classroom, to get them out of the library, get them talking to each other, to other people about what they do and just a fun, really engaging way. Nice. Um, so how do you uh, motivate students to participate in this competition? I try to talk a lot about how it will benefit them during the time that they're at UMass and then once they leave UMass and they're on the job market, they're doing other things. So while you're at UMass, you're probably going to a lot of conferences as a graduate student and you're speaking to people maybe in your discipline or if it's an, if it's an interdisciplinary conference, you're speaking to people in other disciplines. But regardless, it's likely that you're speaking to people who don't know exactly all of the ins and outs of your field. And so you need to come up with an accessible way of talking about what you do. When you go on the job market, you're going to be talking to a lot of people who have no idea what your field even is, let alone the specifics of what you do. So this just gives people a great chance to develop this little piece of communication that they can pull out whenever they need it and just share with someone what they do and why it matters. Nice. I can't help but notice that you didn't mention the money. <laughs> I always tell people that's secondary. <laughs> they do get pretty generous prizes. Our winner gets $1,000, our runner-up gets $500, and we have a people's choice, which is an individual who's voted on by the audience at our final as their favorite, and that individual also gets $500. So, you know, you can make a pretty good chunk of change at this, but for most people, I think the benefit just comes from getting practice at talking about their research in a new way. Yeah, nice. So this event already happened at UMass, but that doesn't mean people can't have access to it, right? There's another event coming up. Yeah, absolutely. For the first time this year, we partnered with the Jones Library in downtown Amherst, and we're doing what we call the Three Minute Thesis Community Day. So our finalists will give their presentations again at the Jones Library. The campus final, which was held last week, is judged by a judging panel. And then, as I mentioned, we have the, the audience vote for the three-minute thesis. At the Jones Library, there won't be judges. The only winner will come from the audience vote. So it's a, a great way for the public to see what people are up to at UMass. Nice. So when is that? It is March 23rd at the Jones Library in, I forget the name of the exact event room, but it's in the lower level of the Jones Library from 3 to 4.30. Cool. Nice. Um, so maybe you guys want to jump in about your experiences with doing this competition. It's something that I had never done before. I've done a lot of presentations for other scientists. I've done science cafes, write blog posts. Um, but to have only three minutes with a, a slide that you can't have any animations in, no videos, um, just to talk for three minutes about that to a general audience is just a very new way to uh, communicate my science. And so it was a very nice challenge, certainly, uh, and enjoyable. A little bit stressful, but yeah. very enjoyable um, to actually get through the whole process, have people kind of edit my work, and then give the final product to an audience. Uh, I, on the other hand, have a deep, deep need to have people listen to me. <laughs> um, it's really an issue. So, uh, and I heard that people had to listen to me for three full minutes without talking. I was like, sign me up. At open mics, you can get five. Five? <laughs> people will throw things at I that point. I see hobby in your future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I really do love talking and communicating science. I think one of the things that 
scientists struggle the most with is approaching people that are not from their fields and explaining what they're doing. Um, and that runs into a lot of issues in the scientific community. It's one of the main reasons that science doesn't get funded is because of improper communication um, to uh, policymakers and lawmakers alike. Um, if we can't make science-based decisions, then we can't really move forward as a society. And I think that's what really holds us back. And the one thing that prevents us from communicating properly is, you know, realizing as a scientist our ability to speak about something in an eloquent way that anyone can understand without, you know, trying to sound, uh, quote-unquote, you know, not smart enough. Um, because it's not that you're dumbing anything down. It's really that you're explaining things in a way that's relatable to other people. And through that, we can educate more people and we can get science to do what it's really supposed to do, help the public more. Nice. So um, that's been something that I think being a part of Life Science Cafe has really helped me. So as I've been uh, the president, I've been trying to, when we do these cafes, they're not really on our own research. They're on some professor, some labs research in the community. And so usually we're all non-experts. We have no idea what the research is that they're doing. And so in that way, even though we're all scientists who are graduate students, supposed to be experts in biology, we're basically the general public. And so I asked them like, okay, so what would be interesting to you about this subject? What are the big questions you have? Like, do you, do you have questions about why we should even care about their research? And so we use like our own, I guess, human, like innate human instincts to try and create a story about their research. Um, and almost doing that has helped me practice do that with my own research, which mm -hmm. I am very like entrenched in, as you say. Um, so almost like trying to explain someone else's research is just as good of practice as, do, as explaining your own. Yeah. Do you want to expand on what the Life Science Cafe is? I actually meant to ask that earlier. Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's a graduate student organized group that's been around since 2011, uh, starting with some fundings from the National Science Foundation and other groups on campus. Heidi has also helped fund a number of our events throughout the years. Um, but basically, we organize a science cafe once a month, and then during summers, we also have a science buzz, which is more like a trivia night, something we just started doing this past summer. Uh, and we basically have a expert researcher, either from UMass or other places, they come and we have a cafe for the general public, where we have three vignettes of different topics related to their research. And we talk, we ask them questions, we have like an MC, it's an informational interview, and then there's question and answer sessions in between each of the vignettes. Um, so just some example topics that we'll talk about this semester. The, up, the um, third cafe this semester will be human health under climate change, so like how are allergies going to change with climate change. And the last one will be about uh, crop domestication, so tomatoes, like our tomatoes today really don't look like anything what tomatoes used to look like or what mm -hmm. the wild versions of tomatoes look like. So how does that work when you're looking at the genes of these things? Uh, so those are just some examples, um, all graduate student organized and uh, for the general public. Where does that happen? We are currently uh, stay at the Nacle Center in downtown Amherst. Okay. Um, and if you want to look us up, we're oebsciencecafe.org. You can find all our information there. Okay, yeah, maybe we'll shift gears, not exactly shift gears, but yeah, <laughs> move to talking more about the details of the research that you guys do. Yeah, so I uh, am in the School of Food Science, and we are really a very large category of different things. When it comes to food science, there's things that range all the way from food science to chemistry to microbiology, processing and engineering. Um, and I sort of fall in the processing and engineering side 
what I do now is I'm trying to find a new way to test for the strength of biodegradable food packaging by uh, using a new method called luminescence. Um, so normally we have biodegradable food packages and they're great because ultimately we don't want to contribute any more plastic waste to the environment. But the issue with these packages, since they're more or less alive, uh, we need to really test for the strength of them. And that's difficult because if you want to use a traditional mechanical testing method, you put it in a machine, it pulls it apart, destroying the package, and that gives you measurements of its strength, which is great. We need those measurements, but the machine is super expensive, you know, about $50,000 a pop for this machine. Most facilities that make these kinds of packages don't own that machine, so they send their samples out to another company, and then that takes time, and then that costs money, and it really impedes the development of new biodegradable packages uh, because the testing's quite difficult. Oh. So I set out to find a new method in order to test for the strength of these packages by using uh, luminescent spectroscopy, which is more or less the use of the phenomena of light in order to measure how molecules behave when you shine light on them. Uh, specifically, I'm using a few different molecules. A uh, big one that I'm using is a green food dye. And it turns out that green food dye has a real good uh, ability to sort of sense its environment. If it's in a real tight, tight environment, it can't really um, uh, do a lot of movement, so it gives off a lot of light. And if I can measure the amount of light that it gives off, I can sort of know how restricted the fast green is in this, uh, um, in this matrix. Can I stop you? Yeah. So if it can't move around a lot, mm -hmm. it gives off more light. Yes, it does. That's confusing to me. Because I, yeah. I would think something moving around would be bouncing off more light. And maybe this is me just not understanding how light works. So consider this. If you gave a child a pound of sugar and they ate that entire pound of sugar, they'd be running everywhere. Imagine what happened if you tied that kid up in a chair. <laughs> Don't do it. But they would probably just start screaming to give off all that energy. They can't move, okay, okay. but they've transferred that energy into something else. And in this case, our fast green, our green food dye, is going to give off light instead of moving around. Huh. Wow. I'm still stuck when you said food packaging is alive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can go back to that. Yeah, I was... Uh, I missed that fact yeah. in school. <laughs> Absolutely. So if I'm making a biodegradable food package, I'm making it out of food material. Um, specifically... Is food alive? Food is alive. Food is so very alive. Because <laughs> mine just don't blow. Yeah, yeah, if you're in the oh studio, my goodness. yeah, you can see I, that. Like, I really like feel like samples. I've done evil. <laughs> yeah, you've done terrible things. Like now, you were asking me if I ate breakfast today, mm -hmm. and now I'm wondering if I did a bad thing by doing it. You killed breakfast today. <laughs> Are you vegetarian? No, but, but veg vegetables are alive. I'm also. pretty sure plants scream when you eat them. Oh. That's a theory I'm working on, side theory. They won't fund me to figure that one out. Okay. Um, but yeah, so food is alive uh, because food in itself breaks down over time. A plastic, not so much alive. That is going to stay the way it is for a very, very, very long time. But you know that if you put even an apple on the table, you're going to notice that it's going to more or less die over time. See, it's I alive. always assumed that that was like other living things interacting with it. Absolutely. That caused it to die. Yeah, Not necessarily. Um, it's, it's a whole 
source of uh, chemical reactions and microbacteria that cause the apple to decay. Um, and that ultimately makes it an alive entity, which makes it really tough to study food. It's, it's one of the most complicated systems out there. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have to look at how these foods sort of break down because that determines how long they're going to last as far as shelf life and if they're, you know, safe to consume anymore. So now if I'm making a packaging out of a biodegradable material, it's made out of a food material. Uh, food materials that I use, I do gelatin right now, um, made from uh, pork skin usually, sometimes uh, cow bones. But also people have done cornstarch, they've done hemp stems, uh, pea starch, proteins from all different kinds of things in order to make these packages. And since they're alive, they break down, mm-hmm. which is what we want them to do. Right, that's they're, the whole They're goal. programmed yeah. to break down. That's the whole point. But measuring the breakdown, not very easy. Right. You don't want it to break down yeah. within like the time that you expect to Exactly. <laughs> um, I think I use the exact line in my three-minute pitch. I say, what good would a food packaging be if it would be not strong enough to hold food without ripping right. and break down over time? So studying that, really, really tough. And if we can find a way to make that cheaper by using a new methodology, um, then we can potentially really increase the amount of biodegradable plastics we use because it'll be a lot easier to make them and that hopefully will uh, reduce the amount of plastic we use and kind of work towards a greener future so um i think i interrupted you when you were explaining the the whole light processing mm-hmm. so yeah. if we could maybe like return to that, yeah, now, that now that we've like cleared up some of the, <laughs> the issues we had with about the food being alive it's terrifying <laughs> really is. i'm still reeling yeah <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah so I you were work... explaining that that green dye mm-hmm. moves around can't move around and so it gives more mm-hmm. light so yeah. so yeah uh when we do spectroscopy we have all kinds of different molecules that we use the specific molecule that i use is called a molecular rotor Now, when you shine light on a molecular rotor, it wants to twist out its energy. It wants to shake and move to get rid of all that energy from shining a light on it. Um, But when it can't twist and move, it has to give off light. It's, um, It's tough because I can't really measure twisting of a molecule. That's some serious science that just is not there yet. Maybe one day. Um, But I can measure the amount of light that gives off. So if I observe a change in the light that this package gives off after five weeks, 10 weeks, 20 weeks of storage, I can say, oh, my fast green is in a real tight environment because that film sort of kind of lost its water and is sort of crumpling up and breaking down a little bit. Then I can say increase in the light given off is going to be a decrease in the, uh, the properties of the film. Mm. So I can use the light to sort of replace what a machine would find out by ripping it apart. Um, And and that's super great for a lot of reasons. Uh, One reason is that the machine is way less expensive. Honestly, a a luminescent spectroscopy rig could get you for about $5,000, which is 10% the cost of that uh, traditional mechanical testing machine. Wow. Um, Yeah, I have lots of them. Yeah, right? <laughs> Who doesn't? I'm kind of surprised that it's that cheap compared to something that just rips things apart. I know. <laughs> you would think that the like, thing with word spectroscopy and right? it would just be even more expensive. Yeah, it's, it sounds I expensive. Apart, right? You could rip things apart, <laughs> you yeah. Tell how strong it you was. You could say, like, super duper strong. 
I couldn't even rip that one. It was tough. Yeah. It was, it's hard to rip. I don't know if you guys have seen, there's like videos online of those mechanical machines literally like compressing ba- basketballs and yeah. compressing oh. it. Yeah. So they're kind of, I think it's like in a similar way, but pressing instead yeah. of pulling. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, every time I do that test, I like to pretend that it's 2009 and crush tube is still really popular. You remember mm-hmm. that phenomena when everyone was hydraulic crushing things in hydraulic presses? Mm-hmm. So I like to think ah. that that's the world that I live in when I do these tests. Realistically, no one wants to watch those videos anymore. I, I think I missed this. So I, I need to. You still watch those? You know, you'd go on YouTube and some Ukrainian man would say like, "Hello and welcome to the hydraulic press channel," and then they'd like put like Jello or Legos, iPhones, or like, oh. blenders, and just, and just you'd crush them. They That's it. it. Wow. I totally missed this. What year was this? Oh, God. 2009 to <laughs> about 2013, I'd oh, say. Oh, wow. What was I doing? It was I a pure know. form of it. They're still around. <laughs> okay, cool. Every time a new iPhone comes out, they crush it. <laughs> Somebody crushes that it. That what goes in a blender. Yeah. Why does everything have to go in a blender on the internet? Oh, okay. Will it blend? We just have to will find out will it blend. God, I love that show. That's, that's <laughs> why I'm blend. in science. Wow. There's a whole lot of things I'm going to have to catch up on tonight. Cool. So, yeah, where were we? Yeah, I don't know where we were. We were talking about how expensive that machine is, how, oh, how yeah. much cheaper yeah. the machine is. So, so the machine is way cheaper, but another great thing about this is that when you do that mechanical strength test and you rip the package apart, you, you destroy the sample. Oh. So you need to have a lot of samples if you're going to study it over storage time. Mm. So if I need to study it at one week, two week, three week, four week, five week, six week, you're going to make a lot of samples. Um, and that's a little counterintuitive because... We need to put in energy to make biodegradable packages. So in order to test them, we need to make a lot of them, which in its own sense is like a wasteful process of trying to not be wasteful. Mm. And since the sample's destroyed, you can't ever use it again. But when you do luminescent spectroscopy, the sample's not destroyed. So I can take that one single piece of biodegradable package and I can measure it week after week after week after week after week, all the way from its creation down to it being biodegradable gradable, you know, like in the environment. And that really, one, it cuts down on the amount of samples I have to make, but also makes it a lot easier to kind of follow the package through time. Mm. Makes it more of a fluid measurement rather than here, here, and here as a time point. Um, And that honestly hasn't been done yet. Mm. And that's what makes this uh, kind of really innovative. I have a question for you. Please. So it sounds like you've just, that at least based on what you've described so far, you're looking at your material just, you know, it hasn't actually been used. Mm-hmm. Do you also put food in your material and see if that changes its rate of degradability or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is a lot of math behind, you know, everything that we do. Um, right now we're doing a very kind of fundamental study to look if we can use luminescence spectroscopy in order to do these measurements. So right now we're kind of just sticking with the single monolayer of this film or uh, of the package in order to test for its strength and everything. But over time we have plans to like multi-layer these packages. We want to layer them with multiple different things. And then once we build analog packages, the next step to do after that would be then to test them out in the real world. which realistically, we have a lot of great examples of these packages. Um, And I'm not trying to create new packages. I'm just trying to find new ways to replace the way that we measure these packages. Hmm. So as far as testing the food in the package, wouldn't necessarily be my job, but it is definitely a job that someone will be doing 
and someone is currently doing. Well, I gotta say, when I think of biodegradable packaging, I think of the Sunchips fiasco. Yeah. Where they tried to introduce uh, biodegradable packaging, and it was the bags were too crinkly, and yeah. people didn't want to buy oh, Sun Chips anymore. The, the loud and so they went back. That one makes me upset when I think about it. You know, when we want to think about changing the world that we live in, <laughs> we have to realize that we're going to have to make some sacrifices. <laughs> and if your chip bag is loud, just don't bring it to a movie theater, guys. <laughs> yeah, what percent? Like, like, what is too much crinkle? It was, it was I, very loud. I do, it was pretty crinkle. I worked at a grocery store, and I could, like, hear it coming. It was like, it was like things in my dreams. I would hear the crinkle when I'd go to bed at night. The focus group would have caught that somewhere. But you're willing to make it. You should have an anthropologist involved. But you're saying you want to make the sacrifice. Yeah, we should be making the sacrifice. If we want to decrease the amount of plastic in our environment, we're going to have to give and take a little bit. Because we're not going to be able to make change if we're like, well, we love all of our convenience and everything now and we refuse to change. Refusing to change is what got us into this environmental pollution problem in the first place. Mm. And that's why we need to be willing to have things that have shorter shelf lives. Mm. Because if you want fresh food, realistically, you should go to the grocery store every three days um, instead of buying in bulk. That's going to reduce the amount of packaging that you need. That's going to reduce the amount of waste that you create. And um, it is a lifestyle change. And that's not comfortable for a lot of people. But if we want to make a lasting impact on the environment, the world in which we live in, we have to be willing to make some changes. I wish I had a joke. Yeah. <laughs> We're all just shook by that. <laughs> We're all evaluating reality. I just saw that Trader Joe's, uh, there are some articles mm -hmm. about Trader Joe's moving toward not using single-use plastics yeah. anymore. Single-use is the big issue. Mm -hmm. The multi-use, like Tupperware, that's fine, honestly. When they look at uh, uh, landfills and everything, Tupperware is not the issue. Yeah. It's the single use. Although I've heard that uh, tup some Tupperware explodes. Yes, and that's fun. Because <laughs> we don't but know how this plastic wait. degrades, and so it'll just like catch fire or explode in people's homes. Wait, really? Yeah. What Tupperware? Uh, I don't think it was a specific brand. Wait, I think it's just it, plastics in general. Plastics. In the microwave or just spontaneously? Spon spontaneously. <laughs> no at, way. At, was, I think it's actually because it was at rest that it <laughs> happened. There's got to be a YouTube video somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can't believe that. <laughs> okay. Um, so what, what's the reasonable, or not reasonable, uh, the biodegradable material that you're working with? You said it's made of gelatin? I'm using gelatin okay. right now. So what's this packaging like as a consumer um, to interact yeah. with? Like, what's it look like? Think about it like, like a bag that you buy spinach in uh -huh. at the grocery store. Um, it's kind of clear. It's easily rippable, but it can hold food, and it's pretty transparent. Okay. Um, and we can add whatever colors we want to it. We can print on it. In fact, I use um, green food dye in order to make my measurements because I want ultimately the package to be theoretically edible. Of course, you don't want to eat this package. It's going to taste like uh, sort of like sweet plastic. Mm. It's not great. I'm, right now, I want to eat it. <laughs> just I should have brought you samples. I'm eating mine all the time. I just imagine like dumping all my spinach out and then just eating the bag that it was you in. You very Sounds well like a could. Experience. Um, and see now that this is a, this is a, a good thing to think about because if it's biodegradable, we have to expect that some part of the package is going to kind of like leach into the food. Uh. So if we want to really um, make sure that it's biodegradable and safe to eat. Every molecule that we use in order to do these luminescent spectroscopy measurements have to be food safe. And that's why I'm using Fast Green, 
um, instead of some super really awesome, perfectly correlatable molecule for spectroscopy. Right. So it introduces challenges, but it also kind of uh, really boosts up innovation. So by using green food dye, you don't ever have to worry about any sort of toxicity going into the food. I was going to say, what if we flavor the packaging? Absolutely, you, you got, could. You got tofu in like sriracha plastic, mm -hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, there you go. Being made. That's definitely an avenue <laughs> to take. Magic right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious though. Um, so this material is made out of gelatin, so it's an animal yep. product. So mm -hmm. like, what about the like? Will vegans not be able to buy spinach in the future? I'm just worrying for well, them. Well, yeah, we, <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we have all kinds of different uh, packages out there. I mentioned that there are some made out of hemp, corn, right. pea protein. I'm using gelatin right now because um, a previous scientist in our group had a lot of work on gelatin, which sort of makes it easier to start my research gotcha. instead of having to do the bare basics. Yeah. Cool. Well, is there anything about your research that we haven't, like, touched on that you want to talk about? Mm. That's a lot of it. Yeah. This isn't what I, yeah. I guess, like, being outside of food science, it seems like such an enigmatic department. I'm like, do they just make yeah. food? Like, what goes on in we there? Maybe could stuff. you talk about some of the other things I that happen in food to. science? Yeah, food science, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is very multidisciplinary. We have food microbiologists, we have food chemists, we have food engineers. Um, you know, the microbiologists are going to worry about things like food safety, you know, salmonella, E. coli, all those food safety outbreaks that you hear about that Chipotle is going through about once a year um, and other things like that. There are people that are trying to find ways to uh, prevent those things from happening. There's people trying to understand why those things happen um, and how we can ultimately make a safer food economy hmm. in the future because we really don't want people getting sick. Yeah. So if we can find ways to best treat vegetables and meat products in order to uh, decrease the amount of foodborne illness outbreaks, then that's a really great thing for uh, society. So that's maybe what a food microbiologist does. There's also people that work uh, in our department that work a lot about uh, functional foods. So how, you know, a glass of wine can cure cancer. You know, that kind of claim that you hear a lot. Which, I have a super fun fact for you now. Um, there, you've ever heard that uh, red wine is good for your heart. Mm -hmm. um, and you, they say, you know, drink a glass of red wine a day. You're going to have a decreased chance of heart attack or whatever that is. Um, it's really interesting because it's all about this compound called Reservatrol um, that is in red wine, not so much in white wine. But in order to get your daily recommended dose of Reservatrol, you need to drink four bottles of wine a day. I'm glad I've been getting enough. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, was, I thought you were going to say a lot. No. <laughs> yeah, right. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Dr. Heidi Bauer-Clapp, who is the Assistant Director of the Office of Professional Development here at UMass and organizer of the three-minute thesis competition. And then we have um, finalists, from the three-minute thesis competition, Liang Guo, a graduate student in organismic and evolutionary biology, and Louis Coloratolo, a graduate student in food science. Don't forget to check out Lab Talk with Laura on social media. We're on Twitter, on SoundCloud, any podcast app that you use. Thank you for listening. Let's jump right back into the show. Cool. Well, I think that probably, I feel like we covered most yeah, of it. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to say before I couldn't we think of anything. Uh, move on and talk to Leon? So you want to know about my research first? Yeah, yeah, just go ahead and tell us about your research. Sure. So I'll, I'll start from a bit of a, the broader picture. Um, 
hopefully all of us in the room can kind of agree that there's this trend toward a warming climate. <laughs> uh, so we're getting warmer average temperatures, more variability in climate around the world. And what we've been seeing over the past few decades is that species around the world, like you can look across the tree of life, that species are shifting where they're distributed. So this can be like going from the tropics toward the poles, it can be going up mountains. Basically, a lot of species are moving away from areas that are getting too warm for them to live and going toward cooler areas. So this is called climate-driven rain shift, and it's uh, actually a huge problem, because you can imagine over evolutionary time, all of these animals have evolved to interact with certain other things. Um, they have certain prey, certain predators, certain competitors, certain things they have mutual relationships with. Um, and so when you get these kind of shifts that we don't really understand why they're happening or we're not really able to predict like what direction they're going to go in and at what rate, it can become a huge problem for like ecosystem health as a whole. So I specifically study fish and we've, it's just been shown that many fish species are doing this where they're shifting away from tropics and in the oceans moving toward the poles. And I study uh, river herring, which are actually a native fish species along the east coast of the United States. So if you guys have ever been in Boston, there's a station called Alewife. Mm -hmm. Familiar? That's named after one of my fish. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So these two, these two species are in the Charles River, okay. um, as well as many other rivers, small and large, along New England, all along the east coast. And they're kind of like, if you've ever heard of sardines or anchovies, that's usually what people are really familiar with. Um, they're kind of related to those guys, but a little bit bigger, a little bit longer lived. And they their life cycle is kind of like salmon. They, they have adult life stages in the ocean and they come into the rivers. So the two species of river herring, which do this, um, they are currently shifting northward. They're disappearing from the southern parts of the range. So they used to be in Florida, used to be in South Carolina. They're disappearing from those areas. And they used to be like a huge fishery, like historically here. They could go out and land, like bring in incredible numbers of these fish and like literally everything eats them like everyone loves to catch striped bass like striped bass love to like just inhale these guys mm -hmm. birds eat them um they've seen raccoons going into the rivers to fish for these guys because they're just like there's so many of them i i use the the term they're like fatty potato chips like everything likes to eat them um there's just so many of them going into the rivers that literally you can just like reach down and grab one and you can pick one up that's how it used to be so right now we have incredibly low numbers um, and we're just kind of wondering why. There's a number of reasons, including dams, overfishing, but I'm specifically interested in that rain shift. So what's happening to those southern populations that they can't actually live there anymore? And so my perspective on it is to look at the physiology of the young fishes, the ones that are being born in the rivers and growing up for a few months of their life before they go back out to the ocean. Rivers are much smaller than the ocean itself, so you can imagine that temperature is changing a lot faster. It's way more variable, and so if it's getting warm, it's gonna get way warmer in the rivers first than it okay. does out in the ocean. So I have worked in the lab and in the field, so I, uh, in the lab, keep these juvenile river herring uh, in different temperatures, and then I see how well they're able to do normal things, like growing, um, storing fat in their body, because these are all things that are really important for fish. Um, so your ability to grow well kind of determines how many offspring you can have. If you're a fast grower, if you can get to a big size, less things will eat you, you will have more eggs. Um, and you can also swim farther, since obviously these guys have to go into rivers, back out to oceans. It's an important part of their life history to be able to swim far. Mm -hmm. So we kind of use that as an indicator for how well these fish are gonna do in the long term. These are also my fitness goals. 
They're your what? These are my fitness goals. Oh, yes. To grow fast, get big. <laughs> and a lot of eggs. I said put on fat, though. You want to do that? Yeah, you got to do both. Fat, <laughs> <laughs> eggs. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Yeah, fitness goals. I should have that as one of my hashtags. Next time I give a talk, I like that. Um, yeah, so I, I just basically look at whether when they're in warmer temperatures, if they're growing slower, if they're storing less fat or energy that will prevent them from doing reproduction, migration, all those good things later on in life. Um, and then I also compare my results to the field to see is this actually happening in the wild as well. Um, so trying to integrate those different approaches and determine whether warming climate is going to affect these guys such that it explains why those southern populations are disappearing. So where in the field do you go? Where do you go? Like, how do you do that? Do you just go pick them up out of the river? or? <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of my research is focused on the Connecticut River. Okay. You guys, it's like right, it's close to UMass Amherst, so um, Convenient. It's within, re yeah, within distance. However, I actually have to go all the way down to Connecticut to get my fish because if you guys are have been in the area for a while, you might be aware there's a Holyoke Dam, mm. and that dam basically has prevented many herring from getting up past that dam. Oh. And there are there are like a thousand dams on the Connecticut River, but a few very, very large ones. And the Holyoke is extremely large dam. So okay. they have a fish lift there, which actually will lift fish up and like bring them to the higher part of the river. But for some reason, whether it's low numbers or like herring are either maybe not smart or not motivated, I'm not sure. <laughs> they just they don't just, like the lift. They just won't go past that dam. Oh, interesting. And so they'll, they'll lift things in like the thousands compared to what it should be like hundreds of thousands maybe oh, wow. yeah so it's it's low numbers um so i have to go all the way down there because that's where the fish are <laughs> and yeah we literally go out in a boat and we will electrofish so this is a very common thing that uh like for example the fish and wildlife service does so they literally are yes electrifying the water it temporarily stuns the fish so they kind of swim up to the surface or like flare their gills and they're like oh <laughs> what's happening and then while they're doing that you kind of net them and so they don't die but they don't they, die no. so you're like tasing the fish yeah it's kind of like tasing <laughs> the fish yeah and this is obviously approved methodology so <laughs> i just need you to know this is how homer simpson fishes oh, is simpsons, it? Yeah, <laughs> oh i'm sad i haven't seen that well maybe they based that on real life i don't know Maybe. Maybe you can Although steal I, a Simpsons clip for one of your times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's implied that they die in that clip, though, so maybe. Uh, you know, yeah, if you turn the electricity high enough, you could potentially kill fish, but that's obviously not the goal. We're trying to <laughs> non-lethally collect fish. Um, yeah, but, you know, the fish I'm working on are in the 20 to 80 millimeter range. They're, they're small. Okay. They're small. So that's like, is that the same as two to eight centimeters? Mm -hmm. So then once you collect the fish, what do you do? So I bring them back to the laboratory um, and then I put them into different tanks where we can carefully uh, maintain certain temperatures. Okay. So I try to pick temperatures that are relevant to their real life, right? I'm not gonna put them in boiling water. I'm not gonna put them in freezing water. I'm trying to understand realistically in the wild what's going to happen to their physiology. So how well they're able to grow and store fat. Um, so I keep them in those different temperatures and then I honestly like I weigh them once a week and this is kind of like a, a bit of a manic process because I don't want to kill them so I I net them and scoop them into a little cup put them on a, on the scale and as soon as it seems stabilized I take a note of what they weigh and then I throw them back in the tank what was your first time doing that like 
crazy. Yeah, my advisor was like, we'll see if you can do this. So these fish have it, are notorious for being extremely sensitive fish. Like the quote is, you look at them and they die. <laughs> so me rearing these fish in the lab was a huge, incredible feat that only people who have experienced these fish would understand. No one else appreciates <laughs> how much grunt work went into being able to rear these fish in the laboratory. Um, so yeah, the first time I did it, my advisor was like, good luck. It's probably not going to work, but go ahead and try. Uh, and so I tried. And so I do lower the stre their stress levels a little bit because handling them, you can imagine if I put you into the ocean for 10 seconds and was like, pulled you back out, you'd probably be a little bit stressed. Um, they're definitely stressed because I'm taking them out of the water. So I add some salt to bring their blood to a similar, like the water's then a similar osmolality as their blood, which just means it's like less stressful for them. It's kind of, that's kind of a weird thing that really only fish people care about. <laughs> um, but I also put some stress put in there. So as they get pulled out, some of their scales come off and they have this protective slime. And so that stress coat helps them rebuild that slime and help keep any damage it basically from happening to their bodies. Oh. And so I tried this a couple times and they survived it. And we were amazed that they did and they seemed fine. And I could do this every week for several weeks in a row and they were fine. Oh. So yes, I pioneered a weighing technique for juvenile river herring. How many fish do you weigh each week? Uh, I'm guessing it's a lot by the look on your face right now. Yeah, like 160 to 200. Wow. Yes. Wow. And I ended up doing it on my own after a while. Wow. Do you ever become emotionally attached to the fish? <clears throat> do you um, name them? I don't name them because they all look the same <laughs> and there's so many of them. I do love my fish because you know, a lot of people don't care about fish. They've done this test where they see, I think they had like a series of videos where they had someone like, I don't know, in, like injuring a person, injuring a dog, injuring a fish, kind of like that. And they went, wanted to see people's reactions, how much they cared. People care very little about fish. They just huh. seem so removed from us. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, I really love fish intrinsically and these guys are probably the least likable of, of many <laughs> fish, aside from like blobfish perhaps. Okay. People really don't like blobfish. Um, <laughs> But I do, I love them, especially when I reared them from eggs to juveniles. Oh. That's a very touching moment. And I did have to sacrifice them at the end of the season because we just, we can't keep them throughout the whole year. When that you was a say sad sacrifice, yes. <laughs> that's really sad. It is sad. Yeah, we anesthetize them, euthanize them. Aww. Yeah, it is sad. Well, I'm glad you didn't name them first. No, right. And luckily, so these fish, we have to go through all this permitting and stuff to actually be able to work on vertebrates mm -hmm. in general, right? I think the people who work on monkeys and apes have it the worst of anyone. But for fish, we also have to yeah, go through that process. They really process. regulate the spines. Exactly, because we have spines, so they're very important <laughs> to protect. <laughs> um, but so we have like all the approval to do all of that. I believe you. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't have to you could have told me you did anything to these well, fish. Well, you know, like, okay. some pe people are very sensitive about that, obviously, for good reason, mm -hmm. of course. Um, yeah, we're not, we don't want to hurt the fish, but um, we are required, actually, to euthanize them at the end of the season. We can't, like, return them back to the rivers. because that mess up the ecosystem. Exactly. You might introduce diseases from our, uh. like, our own building back into the wild, and that's actually way more damaging than mm -hmm. um, just sacrificing a few fish. So what are you finding in the lab when you like put them in different water temperatures? Yeah, so what I have been seeing is that even with a small increase in temperature, so 
I, for example, one of my studies, I had the fish in 70 degrees and 77 degrees. So that's like a temperature, a high temperature in June. And these yeah. fish are in the system till August, September, October. So you can imagine it, it does get much warmer in the system. With a seven degree increase in Fahrenheit, these fish were decreasing their growth rates. And if I also decreased how much food I gave them, they almost were growing at like a 0% growth rate. So small increase in temperature, the drop in how much food they were getting, very low growth rates. Mm. Um, and so you can imagine like maybe if it's a hot week, they could potentially catch up. But if you have a hot month, you're gonna have a cohort of fish or a group of fish that basically is going to be stunted, have stunted growth. And they're mm. not necessarily going to be able to catch up. They've actually looked at adults, um, and I don't think this is, this is published work yet, but um, I've heard through the grapevine <laughs> that basically these juveniles, when they go out to the ocean, they don't actually, they aren't able to catch up. So you will forever be a smaller adult that has less eggs, have a higher chance of being eaten by something else. So it's actually something that in your early life is going to affect you for the rest of your life. It's kind of like if you yeah. gave like someone, they say like you have stunted growth if you have caffeine when you're young or you, you know uh. drink alcohol when you're young. If you stunt your growth early, it's going to affect you later. Huh. So why does the heat stunt their growth? Yeah, this is a really complicated question that I struggled with, um, whether how much I should say in my three-minute thesis, actually. So when you have a higher temperature for things like fish, their metabolic rate increases. And so the example I used in my three-minute thesis was if you imagine working out in a hot room, you burn more calories and have to eat more food to keep your energy levels up. This is because you have a higher metabolic rate when you're in a warmer room. Huh. And so it's not, it doesn't like perfectly translate to fish versus humans because we are like mammals. We always have a high metabolic rate because we're constantly keeping our bodies warm. But fish, basically, their metabolic rates kind of follow the temperature around them. So as temperatures go up, your metabolic rate increases. All of the biochemical reactions in their body are working at a faster rate. And so they have to use more energy to supply all of those reactions. And so this means that, like, if you think about an energy budget, if the fish are getting a certain amount of food and now their metabolic rate is increasing, they don't necessarily have more energy to put toward those things that matter for growth and reproduction. Like making babies is very energetically costly. So if you don't have enough energy, you're probably going to have less eggs mm. or put less investment into your growing your body itself. Um, so like across species, this is a, a, a physiological fact that increased temperatures increases your metabolic rate. Mm. Mammals were pretty stable across a certain range of temperatures, but once you kind of get to too cold or too hot, you know, when you shiver, when you sweat, this can start to increase our metabolic rate also. And it's to a point where, you know, if you go hypo, if you get into hypothermia, hypothermia, it's a problem, right? We actually die. <laughs> yeah. So this like this range of temperatures and how it affects our body is incredibly important. Hmm. Fiona, I think one of the most interesting things about your three minute thesis presentation is when you talked about how you partner with Fish and Wildlife mm -hmm. to actually use some of the information. Mm -hmm. So all of my work, I've been working very closely with uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. They have an office very, like, literally down the road from where my building is, where I keep my fish in Sunderland, actually. And when I go and talk to the, the manager I work with, Ken Sprankle, he's the Connecticut River, like, coordinator. So he manages species, in, like, in the entire Connecticut River, from river herring to sturgeon, like, any fish that's in the river. And he's telling me, like, we don't know anything about these guys, especially in the Connecticut River. No one's studying these fish. No one cares. Like, we need to do this work. And so 
all this time, like he's been helping me get my fish. Um, he says, I would like to know what habitat in the river is good temperatures for these fish to, to basically like be reared in. Um, what percentage of the year is the temperature exceeding temperatures that they can live in? And so he's basically giving me this thing that he needs and I'm saying, okay, we, um, I will work with you basically and use my data that I've been generating this all this time <laughs> to actually say, okay, these temperatures are probably good, optimal for a river herring to live in. And then these temperatures are going to be on the edges, suboptimal, where they are not gonna grow well, they're not gonna be storing fat well. And we're gonna basically use that data to generate maps of the Connecticut River and say, during this time of year, this is what temperatures look like. They should be good for river herring. This time of year, they're not. And hopefully integrate some of these climate models that are coming out for the area and see how are the temperatures in the river going to change over time. Are we still going to be able to have good habitat for these juveniles in 50 or 100 years? Um, and this is something that like a lot of people want to be able to do is predict how suitable is the habitat going to be, where, what like thermal refugia will we still have as time goes on. Because, um, I don't know, it, feels, it almost feels a little inevitable at this point. Like, they're, they're shifting, we know climate's going to be warming, so what do we then do? And so mm -hmm. having that information in hand, these people who are making decisions about how do we actually protect these species, they can make better decisions about like, okay, we continue not fishing them, right? But we can also protect this habitat. We can take down these dams because we know there'll be good temperatures there. Um, and basically just try and maximize our ability to protect these species while we can. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what the like first version of your three minutes and then the final version of your three minutes looked like. Yes. So I would, like, the first thing that I was doing as I was driving at the like, I was driving down to Yukon several times a week for a little bit because I'm doing work with, with a professor down there. And I was like, oh, I could go really dramatic and be like, imagine you're in a hot room, sweat's dripping down your face, and just go, like, really into it. And so I had this whole potential, like, really fun hook that could start into it. And as soon as I started practicing one time, it was like, uh, you just finished the intro and it is three minutes gone. <laughs> and so basically it got cut down to one sentence. <laughs> and um, and I essentially, like, what I ended up doing was writing it all out and then reading it just aloud at the pace I wanted to read it at and seeing how long that took and then cutting it down from there. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of extra information that wasn't crucial, a lot of, like, fluffy stuff, maybe, um, just for fun. And so you really just have to be super, super concise. Um, yeah. So it's just like brutal slash, 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 <laughs> cutting up all the parts that were that were not necessary. Um, were there any concepts, but this is for both of you, uh, that you like thought people would understand, and then when you like tested it on your friends, you like realized that like most people don't have an access point? Absolutely, for me, I, I ran into a lot of those. Um, I didn't use the word spectroscopy at all in my uh, three-minute thesis. In fact, I was a finalist last year as well, and I used the word spectroscopy a few times. Um, as I thought about it more and more and more, I just figured it'd be easier to not say it rather than to explain that it's a phenomenon of light of the excitation of a molecule and then the subsequent de-energization of the molecule up and down to the ground state. Oh, yeah, clear. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> You know, if you were in the audience, maybe this would be different. But 
I it, words like that are jargon that it really cutting it out doesn't hinder the understanding of what you're talking about. And I think that's really the key of the three minute thesis. Um, and you have to play around with it. And there are things that you will think everyone knows, but people don't know. And that's not something you'll find out until you talk to someone outside of your own discipline. Cool. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I feel like we might be ready to move on to the final part of the show. I'm excited for this. Very exciting this um, game called GTA. Gabe's already uh, familiar with this game. He's I hate, I dread this game <laughs> so much. I'm so terrible at it. Yeah, Gabe did that. The last time he did the show, he like afterwards was like, that was really fun, except for that game at the end, which was literally torture. So, um, but we're just going to do it we're to you again. Sorry, anyway. Gabe. So our first acronym is FLIM. F-L-I-M. And this is uh, from Lewis. From Lewis. Uh, uh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, something, found light in, uh, men. (laughs) Found light in men. Um, surprisingly incorrect. Uh. That was a close one. It's actually fluorescence lifetime imaging microscopy. Wow, I didn't get any of them. <laughs> you got light, though. It is... But, um, but light wasn't one of the words. No, it wasn't, but it uses light. Uh, so can you tell us what flim is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So flim is a, a method that is used in order to measure how long it takes my specific molecule to go from really hyper child to back to not hyper child, like the example with the sugar. Uh, So I can measure how long that takes. And that takes a longer time depending on the environment in which it's in. Uh. So we use fluorescence, which is the type of luminescence I use, lifetime, the amount of time it takes to decay, imaging, which is uh, taking like a picture of it, microscopy. And the microscopy allows me to see like on the sample where the lifetime is the longest. This game made me seem so stupid that he just explained to me what images are. <laughs> <laughs> the goal of the game is not to make you feel stupid, Gabe. Okay, well, I, I understand it's that just that's a, a happy byproduct. side effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here's one last from Lewis. Um, H-A-C-C-P. Um, uh, that's like uh, when you get drunk and so you go, uh, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. I got really nothing. Is that it, Lou? Uh, you're so close. So <laughs> close. It's actually Hazard Analysis Critical Control Plan. It is what a food manufacturer uses to make sure that you don't get uh, food poisoning. So it's sort of like a plan to say, hey, if we're making a food that has so much water in it, we need a critical control point to say, we're going to do this to make sure it doesn't have bacteria in it. And it's a plan for the processing of uh, one food product. Oh. Okay, so maybe we should move on to uh, an acronym from Leon. They're um, short. Oh, good. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's one. Uh, BMR. Um, ooh. Uh, ooh. I just... I, can, I, can I get a hint? When we were talking earlier about what an increasing temperature means for fish. Mm-hmm. It relates to the thing that also increases. Okay, so we were talking about metabolization, so that's probably the M. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 metabolic rate. Uh, and then I've only ever heard that in the context of like 
like resting metabolic rate. So like maybe this is like basic metabolic rate. Hey, ding, ding, ding. You got it, Gabe. I think yeah. I should win a $500 for him already. <laughs> <laughs> that was an excellent job. Thank you very much. Good job. Okay, I'm very proud. Yeah, so when you've heard of a resting metabolic rate, what does that mean to you? Well, that's like when I'm when I'm just chilling, not doing exercise, not not having just eaten, just how my body is normally metabolizing. That is perfect, because that's exactly what we measure in like fish or other animals. Mm. So literally, this is so unrealistic, but if you imagine a fish sitting in a chamber, it's not doing anything <laughs> except for existing, <laughs> which is what you just said about yourself. <laughs> what, is the, what is the basic amount of energy that they need to be converting to exist in that space? Okay, the other one from Leon that we'll go with is EBM. Uh, so this has to do with a way that we take care of the environment. EBM. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, ecological? I'm finished. No, keep going. <laughs> okay. uh, a bit more. Um, BM. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm stuck on something that that could stand for. <laughs> I, I, Do you remember what I called the, the fish and wildlife person that I work with? Like, what kind of job title? No, I don't. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can, you can yeah. rescue him from this. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's ecosystem-based management. Okay. Have, you've probably never heard of that before, never. right? Historically, we've taken care, when we try to conserve animals, we target a species. So we say, this species is endangered, we're going to study everything about the species, and then protect that species. And so I think what we're coming to realize is that, you know, everyone individually taking care of a species is maybe not the most efficient or even effective way to take care of the environment. Mm. So instead, what we can do is target an ecosystem itself. So if you're targeting an ecosystem, you're targeting all the resources, the habitat, um, all the animals that interact with each other within that ecosystem, and you're protecting that whole ecosystem. So if you think about like a wildlife refuge or a marine protected area, which is kind of like the equivalent of a refuge out in the ocean, those are areas that basically we say, you can't go in here, you can't hunt in here, we're going to protect this environment for everything living in this area. And that's an example of ecosystem-based management. Cool. Well, I think that's, uh, that's it. I think, we, uh, I think we did it. Nice. Thank you so much for joining me today, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Cool. Yay. Yay. <laughs> 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 the famous outro. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMU Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Caruso. My guests today were Dr. Heidi Bauer-Clapp, Assistant Director of the Graduate School Office of Professional Development and organizer of the three-minute thesis competition. And we had three-minute thesis finalists, Liang Guo from Organismic and Evolutionary Biology and Louis Colaratolo from Food Science. My co-host today was the always funny comedian Gabe Sklan. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting for Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Labs and the Polymer Science Department. Don't forget to check out Lab Talk with Laura on social media. We're on Facebook, on Twitter, and SoundCloud, and all of your favorite podcast apps. Also, you can still go watch the three-minute thesis competition. They'll be doing a public outreach event in Amherst, Massachusetts at the Jones Library on Saturday, March 23rd. You can go see the top ten finalists do their three-minute speeches and vote on who wins that competition. So go check that out at Jones Library in Amherst, Massachusetts, Saturday, March 23rd at 3 p.m. Thank you for listening. Keep it locked for WMUA news coming right up.